to stand for the reading of the gospel lesson, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Luke. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. The Lord replied, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Who among you would Say to your servant, who has just come in from plowing or tending sheep in the field, come here at once and take your place at the table. Would you not rather say to that one, prepare supper for me, put on your apron and serve me while I eat and drink. Later, you may eat and drink. Do you thank the servant? Uh, do you thank the servant for doing what was commanded? So also, when you have done all that you were ordered to do, say we are only... Uh, worthless servants. We've done only what we ought to have done. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. On April 14th, 1970, Three men went on what was supposed to be the third lunar mission, including a walk on the moon's surface. Almost 56 minutes into the mission of Apollo 13, when the command craft was 210,000 miles from Earth, the command center in Houston asked the astronauts to perform the daily stir of the oxygen tanks. This sort of destratified the air in the tanks. It made the pressure gauges read more accurately. 95 seconds after asking that, the astronauts heard a, quote, pretty large bang, close quote. 24 seconds after that, command module pilot Jack Swigert said, Houston, we've had a problem. And a second and a half later, mission commander Jim Lovell chimed in, Houston, We've had a problem. We've had a main B bus undervolt. Now, at first, Swigert thought that a, meteor, a meteorite uh, had hit the landing module somehow. Lunar module commander Fred Hayes was monitoring power and saw that the fuel cells were low on voltage, which is to say they were undervolted. The fuel cells that powered the ship operating off a mixture of hydrogen and oxygen weren't producing enough electricity. Now, minutes after the accident, the astronauts saw that one of the two oxygen tanks, tank two, was empty, and that tank one was venting oxygen into space. Well, since the fuel cells required oxygen to power the ship, not to mention provide breathable air for the astronauts, they knew immediately they were in big trouble. So the moon landing was scrapped, but with a limited supply of fuel and breathable air, the question remained about whether they could even return to Earth before the astronauts suffocated or froze to death. Now initially, Mission Control in Houston thought about simply just turning the ship around and returning to Earth. 
But the problem was that using the thrusters to reverse course would deplete the remaining oxygen before the ship could splash down. So everyone agreed that the only way to return the astronaut safely was to allow the ship to continue uh, toward the moon and then go past it and use the moon's gravity to slingshot the ship back around in a giant sort of horseshoe movement. And then they could use the momentum caused by gravity to power their re-entry into Earth's atmosphere. But the urgent question was, would they have enough fuel and oxygen to last the four days that it would take to complete? Now, the lunar module, or the landing module, had its own limited tanks and uh, oxygen tanks and fuel cells. So Mission Control told the crew to transfer everything to the lunar module, yeah, use it as a lifeboat of sorts. So the lunar module was designed for two people for 45 hours on the moon's surface. But now, there would be three men for an even longer period. Well, they suddenly remembered that they had extra oxygen canisters in the main ship. So technically, they had plenty of oxygen, but that raised a whole new dilemma. Because the lunar module was designed for two people, with three people, the CO2 would build up in the cabin faster than the filters could scrub it out. So they needed to add the filter from the main ship to handle the extra CO2 buildup. Easy peasy, problem solved. Except the filter in the command module was square and the filter in the lunar module was round. So to filter out the excess CO2, they literally had to figure out how to fit a square peg into a round hole. Otherwise, the astronauts would run out of breathable air before they could splash down. Now, in the 1995 movie about Apollo 13, directed by Ron Howard, there's this great scene. It's a frantic scene in Houston as they try to solve the solution to this problem. And so the engineers, they gather in this room together, and the chief engineer, he walks in with this box, and he, he, he dumps it on the table. He sorts through all the objects, and he picks up the square filter in one hand and the round filter in the other, and he gestures to all the scattered parts, and he says, we've got to make this fit into that using only this. But it's the only this part I find so fascinating. I mean, the box contains only the items that are available to the astronauts. I mean, there's no sense dreaming up a solution that requires somebody to make a quick trip to AutoZone to pick up parts and a little pine tree air freshener. In other words, they've got to engineer a solution not out of the parts that they wish they had, but only out of the parts that they actually had. Did you, did you ever do that? Spending all your time sort of grousing about what you don't have? Yeah, I know you did. If I only just had this one thing, I mean, everything would be perfect, right? But would it be? I mean, ever really perfect? I, I don't know. Maybe it would be. 
But more often than not, at least in my case, pining for what I don't have is a convenient way to avoid using what I do have, to, to do what I know I need to do. So the flooring guys who were supposed to install the quarter round molding for me after laying the floor, laid the floor and never came back. So I have this quandary. One, in a pinch, I could install the molding myself, but to do it, I'd need a miter saw, you know, to cut the right angles so that everything fits together properly. And, and I don't really feel like spending the extra 300 bucks to buy one for myself. I, I mean, I guess I could ask somebody to borrow one, but I hate asking people for help. And two, I, I guess I could also use a nail gun. That would help make a job a lot easier. But as I said, money and the whole asking people for stuff. And third, I should probably also have another set of practiced eyes around to ensure that I have the correct measurements to cut the right angles so I don't waste anything. But again, that would require me to ask somebody to help. See, if I really think it through, at least the way my mind works, I just don't have what I need to do the job. If I only had a few more things, you know what that means, right? It means I've got $500 worth of quarter around molding in a pile under the front windows in my living room that have been sitting there for the past year. While I was working on my dissertation, I spent hours reading and researching daily. A dissertation is it's supposed to be a contribution uh, of something unique to the ongoing conversation about an important topic in your field. Now, ideally, your thinking and research should be insightful enough for the rest of the practitioners of a discipline and original enough that you become one of the world's leading authorities on a very specific area of academic interest. But the one thing that you learn almost immediately is how much there is to know. Before you write, you, you, you need to be completely familiar not only with your subject, but with the people who've already written about it and what they said. I mean, it, it, it feels like being given a, tweezer, a pair of tweezers and, 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 and told to clear the sand off of Myrtle Beach. I mean, no matter how much you know, it, it, it occurs to you how much you don't know and how much more you need to know before you can write anything. What every academic has nightmares about is that there's a whole line of argument out there that everybody else in your discipline knows about, but that so far has escaped you, and you're convinced you'll write your dissertation, and your committee will read it, and they will ask incredulously, but you don't even mention Hofstengel's theory of spatial negativity of intersubjectivity. And then they'll all look at each other, and they roll their eyes. And they'll say, you know, your, your lack of a discussion about Hofstengel demonstrates an appalling lack of knowledge on this subject. Why did you think you were smart enough to get a PhD? We're all shocked about your staggering ignorance of the fundamental building blocks of your discipline. What we want to know is who was on the committee that admitted you into this program in the first place? They should be fired. In fact, on the way home tonight, you might want to stop at McDonald's to see if they have any openings because you sure have no future in the academy. And you wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning, drenched in sweat, with an icy hand squeezing your heart like Alex Jones's stress ball. 
wondering why you ever thought you had what it takes. So you know what that means, right? More reading and research. You know what else that means? No writing. What are you nuts? If I write now without knowing everything, you're going to humiliate yourself, right? Your advisor, you're going to humiliate the program. Heck, maybe even the university. And after enough of these panicked conversations with your advisor, you know what she says? Quit stalling. Write. Jesus opens our text this morning speaking to the disciples. He says, occasions for stumbling. Actually, it's the chapter just before our text. Uh, occasions for stumbling are bound to come, but woe to anyone by whom they come. It'd be better for you if a millstone were hung around your, uh, your neck and you were thrown into the sea than for you to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Well, this is pretty tough to start the day on a sunny note after that, isn't it? So how do the disciples respond? And that's just how our passage opens. They say, we're sorely lacking... Increase our faith. Now, here's where things get dicey, because especially after the Reformation, we've been taught that faith is just a more sort of spiritual word for belief, right? But such an interpretation in this case sounds like a plea that Jesus will help them believe what? Harder? More? Here's the thing. I mean, have you ever tried to believe more stuff? I mean, you can't just grit your teeth, squeeze your eyes shut, and believe stuff. Otherwise, Jesus' Jesus' followers would, would, would all be in the celestial landscape business, moving mulberry trees all over the place. Besides, the understanding of faith as belief in this passage has led to some pretty skeevy theology. I mean, you know what I'm talking about, right? Well, if you... You know, if you just had enough faith, you'd get a promotion at work. You'd drive a new luxury car, and your mother's lumbago would miraculously disappear. I mean, but that's how we get televangelists and unsavory politicians. On the other hand, the Greek word for faith that Luke uses here can also be translated as faithfulness. You know, the practical business of living out what you say you believe. Even if you're convinced that you don't have a deep enough belief, you can still act on what you do have, right? Instead of, as Fred Craddock says, sitting at a green light with traffic backed up to Toronto, fine-tuning your soul. And even a little bit of that, just a tiny little speck of faithfulness, that's enough. Jesus anticipates the disciples' reaction because he knows they're wondering, well, if that's true, they don't have to corner the market on belief before ever venturing to live it out. I mean, if they're going to be on Jesus' varsity squad, shouldn't they at least do something big, some, some flashy, Jesus-y kind of stuff? And Jesus said, look, you don't get extra credit for doing big faith stuff that makes it onto the front page of the New York Times. You, you do the small things of faith. You sit with someone who's dying, someone who's grieving, you offer a smile, a bottle of water, look in the eye to someone who slept on the street last night, you speak up at Thanksgiving when your homophobic racist Uncle Chad starts in on one of the immigrants or critical race theory or transgender athletes, 
But don't expect a medal in a ticker tape parade every time you do something faithful. Just quit waiting for it. Do what you're supposed to do using only what you've got. I, mean, I don't need you to be Martin Luther King. I just need you to do the right thing. I heard an interesting story on NPR one time. Not too far from Capitol Hill, Bernice Clark and her great-grandson were caught in a flash flood on Rhode Island Avenue. Ms. Clark's great-grandson, Devontae Williams, was able to escape the car, but Ms. Clark was too frail to open the door, and the water just came gushing in. As Scott Simon reported, witnesses say that a passerby who appeared to be Hispanic saw Devontae Williams straining to reach his great-grandmother, and the passerby didn't just call 911 to say, look, there's a woman drowning, you ought to get over here. He didn't post a message on Facebook. Wow, woman fighting for her life right in front of me. Watch this. Instead, the man stripped off his clothes and dove into the cold, grimy, churning waters. He came over and he jumped into where we were and brought me out, says Bernice Clark. I was alive. He saved me. But then the man went away. He didn't stick around to receive congratulations or join Bernice Clark and her great-grandson for some hot soup and receive their tearful thanks for saving their lives. Now, Scott Simon said there may be several reasons why the man didn't stay at the scene of the rescue, the, un the likeliest of which is that he's an undocumented immigrant from Latin America who feared that the police were going to show up and ask him for proof of his identity. And then Scott Simon said, as people in Congress debate immigration, they might want to think a bit about this unidentified stranger who may be doing backbreaking work for little money in their own backyards and apartment blocks. This man may seem invisible to many, but when he saw someone in danger and distress, he risked his life to save them. He was a hero. He was a model citizen. Now, a notable question about this story, it seems to me, is why someone might take the time to even report it in the first place. I mean, people do good things all the time, don't they? But they usually stick around to be recognized for their efforts. I mean, doing the right thing, even though you know you can't hang around afterwards for the photo op, that doesn't happen very often. It's, it's newsworthy. It's a, it's a man-bites-dog story. But perhaps even more puzzling is why someone might do the right thing knowing that it carries no reward, but that it could also get you in trouble. But that seems pretty grim and pointless, doesn't it? In our passage, Luke feels compelled to point out the drearier side of discipleship. But why? Well, I think it has to do with the fact that I'm so prone to doing things, only the things that promise gratification. And when I do hard work and fail to see immediate rewards, it's just, it's too easy to give up. And Luke wants us to know that sometimes duty is all we've got. And even that consists primarily of small and unremarkable stuff. 
I mean, sometimes the road is rough and the barriers seem insurmountable. So, sometimes the journey leaves us lost and feeling abandoned, unappreciated, and alone. And Luke doesn't seem at all sympathetic when he says, what, did you, you, you think you were going to get a barca launcher and a lifetime supply of attaboys? But see, in the reign of God, that's good news. You don't have to feel like a failure just because your life with Jesus isn't one long, unbroken string of notable successes. Just because you don't always feel like you believe hard enough, just because you, people aren't breaking down doors to tell you what a great job you've done, if you're doing it the way Luke suggests, following Jesus may not only not feel like a reward, it might be the very thing that lands you in hot water. Having said all that, Luke says, don't give up. When duty's all you've got, use what you've got. It may be be as tiny as a mustard seed, but it just might be enough to pull someone's life from the raging waters. At least... I think that's what Bernice Clark would say. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.